Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we pick a different ingredient and say anything we can think of to say about that ingredient. Today, we're talking about apples. My name's Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Terry Robel, and it's time to Check the Pantry. time you eat an apple don't throw out the core don't give it to your chickens don't put it in the compost pile don't dump it in the garbage disposal grab a hand trowel or a stick or a big knife and walk outside walk to the ditch walk to the nearest patch of undisturbed land walk to an unused corner of the yard dig a little hole drop the core in pack the dirt back around it and walk away do it every time you eat an apple when the ground's not frozen. Maybe in 10 or 15 years, there'll be an apple tree growing out of one of those cores. If it survives its first few Homer winters at all, it'll at least be nice to look at someday. If it lasts for 10 years, it might even fruit. Even if the fruit isn't particularly tasty, you can make cider out of it, or birds and moose can eat it, or it'll flower and pollinate other apple trees. Or you can take the non-tasty apples, plant them, and start the whole process again. Keep doing this over and over with some of the apples that you eat. Tell your friends to do it, too. Who knows how many will make it? The short summers, long dark winters, and cold acidic soils make life hard on a deciduous tree, especially one that has to ripen fruit. Every apple has five seeds, though, each seed containing a different genetic code, each seed potentially containing the DNA for a tree that will thrive in the climate and soil of Homer. Perhaps even a tree that will one day bear an apple that might give us that rarest of treasures in Alaska. Fresh, local, delicious, non-berry fruit. It's the exact process by which every apple we know today has been developed. Plantings upon plantings, constant selection of the seedlings that survived, winnowing out the non-adaptable, the bad tasting, and the poor producers. It's the shotgun approach to horticulture, and only one BB has to hit. The apple originated in Kazakhstan, and there's today a small region where wild apple trees with fruits of fantastic shapes, colors, and flavors grow. Out of this weird landscape come all the Fujis and Galas and Cox's Orange Pippins and Northern Spies and Arkansas Blacks, where even the ones that have been deliberately developed do so under conditions of surprising randomness. The Red Delicious, which for the latter half of the 20th century was basically synonymous with apples, sprouted in a corner of an Iowa farmer's orchard where he mowed it down twice before giving the third sprout a chance. The original Golden Delicious was left uncut by a 15-year-old boy who noticed the little sapling and kept his scythe away from it until his uncle noticed the spicy fruit and good production and sold the propagation rights to the same nursery that had marketed the Red Delicious. The Honeycrisp was developed in the University of Minnesota's breeding program, and for years they attributed it to incorrect forebears before DNA testing revealed that one of its parents was different than they thought, and the other was totally unknown. The Rhode Island greening, until the early 20th century, the dominant pie apple in the U.S. was so popular with the guests at the tavern where it first grew that its fame and fruit spread nationwide. And the Granny Smith? It arose from some rotten crab apples thrown out on a creekside in Australia. Probably nothing especially good will come of your apple cores strewn about the yard, but you never know. You never know. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am here with Terry Robel. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. And it's time for another edition of Check the Pantry. And this week, yes, we are talking about apples. And I just want you to know 
that I am not making up that thing about planting your apple cores in the yard because I do it. And I do it with a lot of my apples. And the reason I do it actually is because I lived in a place like 10 years ago here in Homer and they had this beautiful apple tree in the yard. And the reason that they had this apple tree was because like 15 or 20 years before that, some little five-year-old kids had planted their apples. But it was the only one, so it hadn't ever fruited because it was the only apple tree there, and you have to have another one. So before we left that place, we planted another apple tree. It needed a buddy. Yeah, but I don't know if it ever got apples. Oh, you should find out. I know I should. (laughs) Oh, now I want to go do that. You're an optimist. I know. Well, you know, apples are like, they're they're, along with berries and rhubarb, they're kind of like the classic northern fruits because... They're the only they're the only ones that really do well in any northern environment, and we're kind of north. We're sort of right at the edge. <laughs> we are of where of where they do well. Do you have any apple trees? I don't. I don't. I have lots of friends that do. Well, that's good. Yeah. Because the more apple trees, the better. I, I love think. apple trees. Yeah, we 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 have three now, but they're all super young, and I think we planted two last year and one this year. So we we don't have any apples yet. But I'm from Wisconsin, where they grow lots of beautiful apples and. I can still smell them in the fall. They're one of the few. They're one of the few fruits I find that we can that are reliably okay to pretty good at the at the store Store. here. You know, because like yeah, I know we're all kind of pausing. We're like, well, they are okay. I find that honey crisps are pretty reliably tasty around here, at least for eating raw. And I find that Braeburns are usually pretty good. And if you can get Pink Ladies, which they're pretty rare and they're also pretty expensive, I find that those are pretty reliable too. What what kind of apples do you like? Do you keep them around the house? Because I do. I always have apples oh, in yeah, my bowl. Oh, yeah, we do. We always have apples around the house as well. Um, the guys are apple eaters. I'm not so much, but I like to cook with them and put them in things. What are your favorite cooking apples? Oh, I like I like a Golden Delicious and I like a, a Granny Smith and a, maybe a Gala. I don't know. What do you like to cook with? I usually, I pretty much always go with Granny Smiths because they're kind of cheap, you know? And they're, but they're reliably good. They and are. the nice thing about them, not only do they hold their, their shape pretty well, which you may or may not want that, they're, they're acidic enough that they have like an interesting flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, I find like a lot of, a lot of apples, especially apples around here that are mostly bred for being able to keep, they just don't have a lot of flavor necessarily. I know. They might be like a little one dimensionally sweet, but at least, you know, a Granny Smith is kind of tart enough that, that there's something interesting going on, you know? Right, right. Oh, there's there's lots of different varieties, and they're, they're just such a... Yeah, and there's something you can always keep in the refrigerator, kind of like having an onion around. You just... Yeah. I just leave them on my table, and I mean, I eat them like... I eat probably two or three apples a day some days. That's awesome. It is awesome. It's, and they're really good for you. <laughs> and they're so delicious. And, but <laughs> and the nice thing about... The nice thing about the ones here, you know, because sometimes... They're not necessarily the greatest eating apple, but right. even the ones that, that don't eat that well, A, you can make cider out of them. Yum. Which is, that's actually the reason that, that apples were even so heavily propagated, you know, in America. I mean, like everybody knows about Johnny Appleseed. Well, he wasn't planting those trees so people could eat those apples. He was planting them so they could make booze and, you know. Here I thought he was planting them so his mom could make him a pie. <laughs> no, it was because life was life was difficult and lonely out on the <laughs> frontier. And you got those long winter days and you're going to while them away by drinking apple cider. Playing which, cards. And, and yeah. Prohibition actually annihilated just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of apple orchards because they weren't, they weren't, they weren't fruit apples. They weren't really for eating. Oh. You know, they would either be straight crab apples or just a not very exciting variety of apple that still would make delicious cider. And cider was like, I mean, it, it, sometimes it, it kind of makes me sad to think about that time before prohibition, because, you know, if all those apple trees had survived that wow. time, like we could have, we could have a cider industry that would rival like the French wine industry, you know, for like variety and, and because they are so responsive to where they're grown you know, and what varieties you're using. I mean, it's just, there's a whole like lost what if alternative history out there of what, of the way that Americans drink and approach things, you know, and that kind of blows me away and makes me sad. You should start that. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm doing my part with my three little apple trees See, and my multiple apple cores that I plant, that I've planted all over my yard. (laughs) And none of them have come up yet because I just, I just really, I did it a few times 
the last couple of years, but I just really started doing it um, this year. Just go out and talk to him. Tell him, I'm going to make you into this amazing apple tart, <laughs> and you're going to be the apple that my friends, grandkids are going to love to eat. Yep, there you go. Is Ooh. that the secret to horticulture, is talking yes. to your seeds? Yes. They, they got to feel the love, okay? And the other thing, too, when I was a kid, like, I didn't really eat. I, I always thought apples were kind of boring because even... 20 years ago, like the, the number one apple was like the red delicious. It was, you know, that was like, I mean, for years and years and years, that was by far the number one grown apple in the whole world was the red delicious. And it's still like when we, when you think of an apple, like that's the apple that you think though, it's, it's beautiful. And when I was a little girl, my dad's company, every Christmas, they gave out a box of these beautiful red delicious apples to their employees and they were all individually wrapped in little brown tissue and that those apples sat out in in the garage where it was cool and they were like the biggest treat they were so pretty and so sweet and so perfect and um to this day when i think of apple i think of those red delicious apples but it's funny because if you get a red delicious apple nowadays, and really for the last 15, 20 years, you're getting a mealy, not very delicious thing. And it always, I, I was, now I'm like, you get, you get a red delicious, it's, ine it's inevitably incredibly disappointing. And I go, God, you know, how did this thing ever become so popular? Here's what happened is that in, as the, the orchard plantings began, what they did is they selected the branches because all apples are grafted onto rootstock. So they selected the branches that had the prettiest apple mm -hmm. they didn't care about the taste they they picked the ones with the prettiest apple and the ones that would keep the longest and so gradually over the years they kept propagating their new their new uh, trees with the prettiest rootstock and the most attractive rootstock and eventually they got to the thing now that we have today which is this leathery sort of skin that's super bright red and super beautiful encasing this like sandy mealy not very interesting flesh and i feel like there's a profound lesson in that. I'm going to go to the store today and get a red delicious apple. And you're, you're probably going to be disappointed. And if I'm not, I'm calling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't talk about apples without talking about pies. They're probably the most common type of apple dessert in the world. And while we love the classic double crust American apple pie, they can be a bit finicky to make. And we'll talk about them in a minute. But first, we're going to head up to Station 12, where Terry, her son Rob, and I made a galette, which is the freeform French version of pie. season. I chose apples and pears. I have um, crisp apples here. I have apples that will stay firm after we cook them. What kind? Uh, we have some uh, a Granny Smith, we have a Golden Delicious, and a Gala. We're going to take the outside peel off them and then we will work on our pears. I've got two beautiful Bartlett pears. They're so fragrant. Um, they're a very pretty yellow gold color. And Bartlett pears have a tendency to ripen in one day. I always go to the market and buy them the day before I want to use them. So they're perfect the next day. I think the trick here is just not to have it get too ripe so it's soft, so it still has a little firmness and integrity to it yet. So tell me about this dough, it's a whole wheat dough? The dough is, it, you know, I, I kind of experimented a little. I put a little wheat flour into it. I, I uh, just tried it to see what it would do. It's, it's a half butter, half shortening. It's a pastry flour with a little salt and just a tablespoon of sugar. I like to do my pie dough with a fork or a pastry blender to cut in the um, the sharpening in the butter. And I believe you could probably do a whole show on pie crust and crust. Oh, we're gonna do a show on pastry flour. Just switching to pastry flour immediately makes your pie doughs better. And I, I just started doing that. 
And so um, what I'm doing now is I'm putting my um, apples and pears in a big bowl. And I put a little lemon juice in there to keep them from getting um, brown. And this is going to keep them looking all pretty. Um, I'm also going to put a little sugar and cinnamon and a pinch of flour cornstarch in here. And just a smidgen of salt because salt. You have to have salt. And so now we're going to put a little sugar in with our apples and our pears. And you know, they're already pretty sweet. And I don't like really, really sweet desserts, so I maybe put in a quarter cup. That probably isn't even too much. So we're just going to shake these little guys up in the bowl here. It's kind of fun. And let them hang out. You know what's really good on, on, on these that I use sometimes, if I have it laying around, is the uh, fly spice. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> so as I've got my apples and pears hanging out together, um, Rob is rolling out our dough. Okay, so that's, I'm thinking that's big enough. They said 12 to 14 inches circumference on your dough. Yeah, you do want some room uh -huh. for overlap. Yes. Thank you, sir. So I, I saw a little cute trick where someone took a, a plate and they inverted it and they laid it ever so gently on top of the dough. Oh. So they had the circle. All right. So this is our border for our fruit. All right. And then um, that'll give us a nice, even-looking tart. Man, you're a lot more careful with your galettes than I am. Oh. That's one of the things that I like about them is I just because I'm lazy, <laughs> so I just, I just kind of roll it out into a vaguely oblong shape and, and throw everything in the middle and then fold things over randomly. But you're like, this is gonna look way better than mine. So I'm thinking our dough here is about what quarter inch thick, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Maybe, know. Not I, quite that. I, I, Maybe a little less. I'm not an expert pie it looks baker. Good. It looks good though. I think it looks good too. And I think we're going to start fanning the fruit and onto the circle. And Robert, we'd be honored to have you help me. All right. The dirty hands here. We're now we're alternating fruits. Great. No well, point. we're trying, but you know. Okay. Got a nice fruit parade. Nice fruit parade. But you know. So you're going straight on the, uh, you're going right on the dough with the apples. Going right on the dough. Here's, Something that I will do occasionally, especially if I have something kicking around, especially if I have like yeah. something really nice, like thick jam. Oh. Is to roll that, is yeah. to spread a little of that on the bottom. You know, and, and we could spread a little sugar on it, but oh, the fig jam would be great or, ooh. It's not, it's not super, or you know what else works really well, especially with apples, is uh, like creme fraiche. <gasps> there or, you are with the creme fraiche. Or, um, Cream cheese works too, Ooh. you know, just a little, or like farmer's cheese or any like kind of soft cheese. Cause you know there's those people that like to have a slice of cheddar cheese on top of their apple pie. That oh, would, yes. Yeah. You can put that in the crust. These rustic tarts are just about anything. You can put anything in them. There's Berries. not a prerequisite on what, go, you can make a savory one with, yeah. with cheese and. You guys ever splash some apple brandy in there? Yes. Turn that into a party, party galette. You could throw yeah. blue cheese all over this and it would be awesome. Oh yeah. my God, We're just, I'm, sweet. I'm just, just busy and, and basic this week, so. Busy, never basic. No, simple. Simple. There you simple. Go. We're going simple, guys, okay? Because Rustic. Rustic. The whole point is to just <laughs> do it. All right, so our fruit looks pretty good. Rob, I think I'm going to put some more sugar on here, though. Mm. I, so, okay, we've got our fruit laid out on our pastry. Okay. And now we're going to fold it over onto the fruit. And I'm carefully folding it up and making a little ruffle. You don't have to do that. Just looks all neat and tidy. Okay, so that looks pretty good. Now, and I'm thinking because I'm, I'm such a butter lover, I'm gonna melt a little butter and put that over, spread that over my, brush that over my dough and even my apples and pears. It already looks pretty cool, huh? And then we immediately stuck that in a 400 degree oven and left it to cook. That thing was awesome. It turned out pretty good, I gotta say. Yeah, we brought it into the station and I think it fueled them on uh, 
on election night. And, I, and we were making a galette, which they're my favorite kind of really favorite kind of pie to make, unless there's some reason that I want to get a little fancier because they're so simple and they're just free form. I don't know about you, but I am not a particularly great maker of double crust pies. I'm not so good. I, I say I'm not so good at it. I, maybe just because it's not my favorite thing to do. But yeah, I agree. Um, do you, uh, when you're making a double crust apple pie with this one, you know, all we did was we macerated the apples in, in the, the little sugar to release mm-hmm. the juices. Mm-hmm. But there's two schools of thought on a, on a double crust pie, which is there's the school of thought that, that does it like that, in which case you get kind of a looser, you know, apple pie consistency. And then there's the school of thought that cooks there apples right before they make the pie which gives you like firmer you know it's almost it's not quite like a jam or a jelly but it's it's starting to nudge in that direction so are you a are you a raw apple pie maker or are you a cooked <laughs> Ooh, i live on the edge raw but you know if you cut into that pie when it's still really hot it's it's gonna ooze all over it will and if you, you give it, it a little cool. time to cool it'll set up a little bit and then maybe you know, that you'll get a, a better looking piece of pie and heat it up a little bit in the microwave or something before you serve it with a little ice cream or... Do you ever get the problem that I have also had? And it only happens with the raw ones. This is another slight advantage of a cooked one mm-hmm. where you you make your pie and you put your crust on and you, you throw it in the oven and you pull it out and it's this big, beautiful dome. And then you take it out and there's like this huge air gap yes. and then the, and then the yes. dome just sinks in and it just looks like this sad depressing yeah. thing and yeah. it still tastes good but do you how do you how do you combat that I, I i don't i just cross my fingers and hope it's gonna work the only thing that i've ever found that even sort of works is is piling the, the pie up a lot higher yeah. than you thought that you were going to need it to yeah that kind of works if my mom was listening, she could call and tell me all her secrets about pie making. But is, she, is she a major double crust? She just is a good old Midwest baker, you know? I mean, I'm from the land of, you know, apple pie without the cheese is like a hug without the squeeze. <laughs> so the other, the other big kind of major sort of apple pie-like dessert, because there are apple tarts, and they're, they're pretty common in, like, fancy French uh, pastry shops you know, made in a little tart pan, you know, open, yes. open with, with the little tart, with the little apple slices, very neatly made on a mandolin. And those are delicious as well. But the real hardcore French apple dessert that everybody loves, which you brought in today, and I haven't had a piece yet. I'm going to have a piece in a little bit is the, is the classic tart tatin. Yes. Which is like the original upside down dessert. Yeah. You cut your apples up in big chunks and you set it in a cast iron skillet with lots of butter and some sugar. You got to have a lot of butter. A lot of butter. It just bubbled and bubbled and bubbled. And, and actually, when I took the apple tartan out of the oven, it and I had my husband flip it upside down because it's in this big cast iron skillet, right? And I'm a major klutz. And it almost looked like peaches because it got this beautiful golden. Yeah, because you color. made yours. You just cut yours in half and then cored them out and then yeah. and then cooked them that way. I've seen them. I've seen them done with quarters. I've seen them done that way. And it seems like the bigger the bigger the pieces are, the less likely it is to actually stick at the end. I guess because they don't render as much juice. Right. Because what you're doing is you, so you caramelize the apples first and then you. And then you cover the whole thing with, with your pastry. And you just mm-hmm. used just a regular pie pastry, right? I just used one of the pie pastries that I made for the um, galette that I had left over. Did you do you do you vent it? Because you have to vent a regular apple peel. No, you don't. Yeah, you just it was you just sort of throw it on there and don't you because yeah. it looks like it, if I'm remembering it's been a long time since I made one. You you like tuck the you tuck the, the mm-hmm. dough around the edges, right? You don't cover it like yeah, a pot yeah. pie. You just sort of, t- so the steam gets out that way. Right, you tuck the dough in, like you're covering it up for a little blanket and send your little apples to bed in the oven. Yeah. And it comes out and it's like, and so then you get, you get caramelized apples on the, on, well, you flip it. So then you get the crust on the bottom and the crust is really crispy because it's on, it was on the top in the oven. So it's right. crispy as opposed to like, you know, sometimes, sometimes one of the, one of the difficult faults in a double crust apple pie to get around is a soggy bottom shell because you're not blind baking the crust. Like a lot of times, you know, if you just had one crust, you, you could blind bake and get a crispy shell before you put the filling in. 
but in an apple pie, it all goes in raw. So do you have that problem or do you just kind of? Oh, I have that problem. And I wish somebody could call in and tell us how we could avoid that. Um, I've read things where if you um, heat your pizza stone in your oven um, while you're preheating your oven, that might help it. But our galette is in the oven and it's almost done, but we thought it needed a sauce. So we moved over to Station 12 stove to make a caramel sauce from a handful of white sugar and a splash of cream. The easiest way to make it if you're a little freaked out, A, if you don't have a gas stove and a heavy bottom pot, it, it, it's easier to do it wet, which is where you take about half the weight of sugar in water and you dissolve it and then you, you cook it, but you let it sit. You don't stir it. You don't want to stir it because that'll make crystals. So you, once it's dissolved, you can just let it sit. And once it comes to a boil, then the water will cook out and then it'll start caramelizing after the water cooks out. It's pretty fast to do it that way, and it's perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. But once you've made caramel a few times, and you kind of know what you're doing, it's a little faster to make it dry. I tend to make like a little bit of caramel, okay. and then I keep adding sugar to expand my volume, so I make like a little tiny bit of starter. And the only reason I do it that way is because I feel like it gets going fast. Like the hardest, the thing that takes the longest is just getting the sugar to melt. Right. But if you start out with a little bit of melted sugar, you can keep adding more sugar to it and it melts and that sugar will melt quicker. Wow. You can put all the sugar in the pot and just let it go. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I'm impatient. I just like to always be doing something. Me so too. all I do is I cover, I cover the bottom of the pot in just a little layer of sugar. Okay. And, and then the we pot's wait. kind of warm. The so pot is hot. The pot I have the, hot. I have the pot on hot on medium um, high okay and the way you control temp isn't by isn't by the the burner you control your temperature by removing the pot ah. and, I and i'm constantly picking up the pot and i'm constantly shaking the sugar around and it's not burning that way as well right and that just keeps that just keeps you want the average the average temperature to be about the same so i am just going to stand here and i've got you know this is maybe a quarter cup of sugar and the like I say, the longest part is waiting for the first batch of sugar to melt. Once the first batch starts to melt, it'll melt into a clear syrup first. And the longer it stays on, the longer it, you know, the darker it gets. But if you keep adding new sugar to it, it cools it down, so it's never going to get too dark. Okay. You know? And this is actually a really groovy chemical reaction, caramelization. Um, it releases these volatile molecules called diacetyls, which we might know from homebrewing beer, and there it's undesirable, but here it gives it that cool, buttery, that caramel flavor. So we're starting to get a little meltage, and okay. there's one little hot spot where it's a little darker, but that's okay. So what color are we at here? Oh, we're very, very pale, pale. There's, a, there's one little streak of the brown, and that'll, that'll even out Ooh. as we cook. So I'm just, I'm just yes. constantly rotating the pot, and when I'm getting, you know, and I'm, I've, I basically got this little amoeba of, <laughs> oh, of, uh, of, of melted sugar. And now that, now I've got it, it's mostly melted and it's kind of a really, really pale gold. Kind of like the color of like light, light rum, basically. Ooh. And now I start adding a little more sugar. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. And you're not using a spoon at all? Nope, I'm just turning the pan, turning the pan, and I just keep rotating it, and I keep eating the sugar with, you know, I like to, I just imagine it as like this little amoeba of caramel that's constantly like reaching out and like <laughs> absorbing the rest of it, and it's gradually becoming a, a larger amoeba of caramel. I don't know if the word amoeba in, in food and cooking is... Attractive, I, but the pathologist in my life would adore that. They've got all these icky poo names that are food related, you know. Ugh, those guys. So now I've got kind of a blonde mass. There's some big chunks of, of still unmelted sugar, and you just keep going. Okay. And then as this melts down a little more, I'll add a little more sugar. And Nemo looks hungry. When are you gonna feed it again? Oh, it's getting Ooh. fed. Oof. 
I'm, I'm adding about a quarter cup at a time, maybe a third of a cup, something like that. You don't have to be real yeah, particular. Yeah, it's not a lot. And just always moving, always swirling. And this is a pretty high-sided pan um, to do it. If you're doing it this way, you kind of want the pan to be high-sided with a long handle. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, if you try to do it in like a skillet, you can. I mean, I've done it in a skillet before, but then yep. you have to worry about when, once you start getting a volume of caramel, then you have to worry about splashing it out. And what, what size would you say this? This is, a, this I think, is a two and a half quart. Two and a half quart. Saucepan. Okay. With that, again, with that. This one, yeah, this one's got a heavy, this one's got a heavy bottom. It's mm -hmm. a stainless pan with a thick clad aluminum bottom. Okay. I mean, yeah, and I've seen them use those Gucci copper pots, which are beautiful, but I think the important part is just to have that nice heavy bottom. So let's see, this will probably be enough. I've probably got a total of maybe a cup of sugar, maybe a little more. Okay. And I think this will probably be enough oh, to that'd be plenty, make huh? a sauce for burgalette. God, that's beautiful. It smells so good. It does. I, I love And so, here's the thing. We're doing this with white sugar, and because <laughs> brown sugar mixed in water and cooked down to a syrup is not caramel. It's just a brown sugar syrup. The flavors that you get out of caramel are very different. I mean, it, even though it is brown, it's not the same kind of brown as is in brown sugar, which is molasses. Mm -hmm. And molasses is not the, the flavor that we're after no. with this, you know? Caramel flavor is like, it's deep, it's rich, it's a little bitter, but it's also, it's not, you know, and even despite the fact that it's 100% sugar, it's not really sweet, right. you know? It's just got this like intense, right. like rich, almost savory flavor. So now I've got it. It's Getting to be pretty much where I want it. Yeah, it's like just, a pale. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a, it's kind of a just starting to edge into darkish reddish brown, mm -hmm. and I don't want this to be too black and intense. Another reason you want a high sided pan is so that when you add your cream, and it starts to volcano, <laughs> we stop back. You don't, uh, step back. You don't. <laughs> you don't splatter everywhere. So I'm pouring the cream in. And the caramel around the cream immediately hardens mm -hmm. because it's cooled. And now what's happening is now I have like, part of the caramel has solidified, it's made a shell, and the rest of it is slowly dissolving into the hot cream. And the great thing about this is with the amount of sugar that's in it, it pretty much keeps forever in the fridge. So if, okay. you, make, if you make a big batch of it, you can just dump it out into a squeeze bottle or something and you can have this caramel sauce just mm -hmm. sitting around in your fridge forever. Yeah, we're getting some nice violent bubbling. Oh, no, hell hath no fury like a freshly made caramel. <laughs> salt. Salt. There's two approaches you can take with the salt. One is to just add just a little bit of salt because it will, it'll perk up the flavor. The other thing you can do is you can add even more salt so that the salt becomes... Salty caramel. A, yeah, so the, the salt becomes like a flavor of its own. So I am very happy it looks perfect. I'm very happy with this. I am too. I love caramel. The first 25 minutes are almost up. I'll just give it a look, see? Ooh. Yeah. How's it looking? That actually looks really good. It does. <laughs> <You guys laughs> don't don't be so surprised. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, of course. You can smell the pear and the apple. Oh my gosh, okay, does that so say next, fall? So the next question is, how do you want to deal with the caramel? Do you want to add it? To, the, to that now, or do you want it on the plate with the individual slices? Surprise me. No, this is your galette, so oh. you're gonna tell, you're, you're making the decisions. Uh, I would like to have um, the caramel on the individual slices drizzled over them. All right. And it was beautiful. And very fun. And we invited my son, Rob, who is visiting and he loves to cook. He loves everything about food. And, he's, and he brings the science. When I, when I get the science he wrong, he fixes it. Yeah, he's studying. I edited doctor. out the part where I got something wrong because, you know, it's my show. I don't. I don't <laughs> he mentioned I'm that. I'm not going to let myself look like an idiot. No, he mentioned that. But um, yeah, he's a lot of fun. I knew he'd, he'd be um, just a great little addition to our kitchen party. So I'm glad he came. So that, uh, that particular galette, it was delicious, and, and we could talk about pie and pie dough and apple pie for the rest of the show, but we're not going to because there are so many other desserts out there, there are. involving apples. Most of them, 
are much easier than apple pie because you don't have to make the pie crust. You can just, a lot of American apple desserts really are, they're like the classic, like busy person's dessert, you know, because you didn't necessarily have time to fool around making pie dough all the time. You'd make the pie for like a special occasion, but during the week you might make a cobbler. Yeah. And which, which is biscuit dough usually. Mm-hmm. Or a crumble. Which is streusel. Crisp. Or crisp. Or cr- What's the difference between a crumble and a crisp? Do you know? Are they, is it just a regional thing? I don't know. <laughs> the great thing about apple desserts too, is you can just kind of, as long as there's like a crunchy thing on top. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of apples and cinnamon and maybe a little sugar. It's all good. Yeah. It pretty much, you know, it doesn't matter if you call it a pandowdy or a, I think, I think the Bettys, those are a specific thing. Those are um, that, layers. Yeah. Like, and that's breadcrumbs, right? Right. It has and, to be breadcrumbs. And apples in the breadcrumb mixture and layers of that. A lot of these are really old fashioned things. But, it, but the thing that I think I want to stress here is even if you can't make a pie crust, Go buy, go buy one and, and just make the pie, get in the kitchen, have fun, make something with these beautiful apples, you know, or go get the pastry, um, the phyllo dough or the puff pastry. And it's, it's easy to do it with that. Oh, are you going to try to get people to make strudel now? Maybe. I've never actually made strudel <gasps> because I've never made the, I don't know, I, like, I have a really small kitchen, so I tend not to make stuff that you have to roll out too big and strudel. Like, you need some room to get that big sheet of, of uh, pastry out to, Ooh, yeah. to roll. And it has to be that super thin, thin. It's it's kind of like phyllo, but it, is it? Yeah, very much so. Because you're German. I, you probably know more about strudel, you know, I watched, strudel than um, I am. I watched a cooking show on that once, and they had this huge, huge cupboard or counter, and this dough was just draped over it. It was such a work of art to watch these people make this. And I used to make something that wasn't really a strudel, maybe um, just like a, a pastry sort of thing when we lived on ADACT, and I, I was so hungry for good bakery, and I had... There's youth. not a bakery on ADACT? <laughs> Do you imagine that? Obviously, but, there's a market on ADAC for classic pastry. There would have been when the Navy <laughs> was there 30 years ago. We just received confirmation from Kathleen, who is our, in addition to engineering the show, is also our research assistant. Officially, the difference between a crisp and a crumble. They're both made with streusel, not strudel. They're both made with streusel, which is butter, sugar, and flour, and typically, and sometimes something else. Ooh. A crisp... The streusel has to contain oats. Very good. It must be like made by Scottish people originally. Could be. I bet it is. Think about it. Or horses. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, 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 we're not even going there. <laughs> All right. All right. No, I, I loved baking fun things out there because I couldn't get them. And the only way I could is if I made them. And so. Uh, since we were just talking about caramel, I think. We can't leave the Apple show without saying that if you take that, if you take a moment to make that caramel and you have some left over and you have a couple of apples left over, you can very easily put a stick in one of those apples and dip it into the caramel. That one, you might want, you might want to do it before you add the final bit of cream because you don't want a totally saucy um, caramel that's going to totally drip off. But That'll, that, that exact caramel sauce, just straight caramel and cream, will make you the greatest candy apple. Remember the, the taffy apples or the affy tapples what they sold at the grocery store? where It was a smaller green, um, a Granny Smith, and then they had the caramel on it, and then they rolled it in the little um, peanuts. Oh, yeah, and the nuts. Those are my favorites. Those are good. You could roll them in any kind of a nut. Oh, yeah. Walnuts. Pecans. Walnuts, pecans, almonds. nuts. Ooh. Yeah. And then there was the candy apples. Those are a little more involved to make because candy candy making is like it's whole is a whole different thing and we do not have time to talk about candy making today. No. But an apple dessert needs a beverage to go along with it. So this week Skip Clary brought the 2013 Leitz Spätles Riesling. That's me pronouncing German to station 12 to taste with Trish Wilson. As always at the beginning she doesn't know anything about what's in her glass. Mm-hmm. 
assuming this is some sort of Riesling-ish. Possibly, mm. but I don't want to say one way or the other because mm. I don't want to prejudice mm. any expectations. I'm smelling grapefruit, lime, a little bit of effervescence in there. It is a little bit, which kind of makes it really interesting for, mm -hmm. for food. So what sort of other fruits are you picking up with that? Pear. Give it a good chew. The physical act of chewing sends a message to your brain to switch on more taste receptors. It's and more tropical. There are definitely some tropical yeah, notes like, going like on Like I want to say guava initially. Mm -hmm. One of the notes that I'm really getting off this pretty strongly is just a, a primary apple flavor. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. um, several kinds actually. But like there's, the green. There's green things. apple for sure, um, but I'm also getting sort of a, a golden apple as well, a little richer, especially with the sweetness. You you mentioned Riesling, and yeah, um, one of the notes that is a real signature of of Riesling is what's referred to as petrol. It's kind of mm. a, a almost mm. a solvent kind of thing. It's pretty sharp, but it's one of those notes that people don't like to say because they think it sounds wrong. It's like, well, my wine doesn't smell like gasoline. It's like, no, not quite, but it has that that sharp petrol aroma, mm -hmm. and it's it is definitely something that is a, a signature of Riesling. I can see that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's a real high note. But it really does, it it strikes very strong and then really mellows out mm -hmm. really quickly. Yeah, and it's, that petrol is more on the nose than it is on the palate. So like with this, with this wine, um, when you, when you chew that wine, it gets it all back into all the taste receptors all over your palate rather than just right down the front. So I try to get the wine back into the back of my jaws because that's where you pick up um, acidity. That's where you mm. can really detect the, the acid level of a wine. And you'll feel it kind of as a little sting back there. Now alcohol has the same effect initially, but then what happens if it's if it's acidity that's causing that little thing it's going to cause a mouth-watering response it'll actually make you drool whereas alcohol will, will dry out very quickly so when you get that little bite at the back there it might be alcohol it might be acid so you kind of withhold a little bit of judgment until you see what your physical response to that is um, the the sweetness aspect of it you can actually pick up in the roof of your mouth just as well so i i i when I'm tasting a wine, I get it everywhere. I want every last nerve ending to have a look at it. Do you so. think this is why with sweeter wines, when people say, okay, let's do a spicy food with a sweeter wine to do that pairing, because it is in the back and top mm -hmm. roof of your mouth, there's a little bit more, I hate to say viscousness mm -hmm. that comes yeah. from that sweeter wine. And I wonder if that actually catches that spice. And It can do. One of the other reasons that you don't want to throw well, why people will pair Riesling in particular or a Gewurztraminer with spicier like Asian food um, or Indian food is it tends to be lower in alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a sweeter wine, what that means is the yeast did not digest all that sugar and convert it into alcohol. So you'll, it, you'll see a lot of Rieslings out there that are, especially the sweeter ones like this, that are going to be like 8-9% alcohol. Mm. What happens is if you if you have too high an alcohol wine with a really hot spicy food, the alcohol tends to amplify the heat of the spice, but it actually mm -hmm. dampens the flavor of the spice, and that kind of has it all around backwards. With a with a wine like this, though, um, the the tropical flavors that you were mentioning mm -hmm. tend to work really nicely with curries with the kind of spices that you're getting. How would you describe the mouthfeel of this wine? Just what what you've experienced so far. Well, it's it's light, but it it sticks on the back. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a little bit different than a red, as far as if you're looking at and trying to look at legs and the sugar content mm -hmm. of a red, it's not as not as much, but it does it sticks. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now this is um, this is a fairly low alcohol wine, and so it's it's actually alcohol that that causes the legs because there's um, there's glycerol that mm. is produced alongside alcohol they're you know two kind of parallel byproducts um this is what's referred to as a, a spätlese riesling so it's a mm. later harvest mm. um that doesn't always mean that the wine is going to be really sweet because i don't i don't take this as a particularly 
sweet, sweet wine. Um, I think the acid really balances up the sugars nicely though. It, you get that sweet tart mm -hmm. um, yeah. combination that really works. And the food that this is meant to go with uh, is, the, um, is the apple chapter. Mm. And I thought that, you know, if you were going to have like a, uh, an apple tart that had a lot of butter in there, you'd want the acidity to pair with that. Um, but because apples aren't themselves particularly sweet fruit, then you could have a kind of fresher flavor that would work with this rather than like loading up a lot of sugar on the apples. You don't need to. You could actually just let the apples do most of the heavy lifting. Um, so that's why I pulled this one out. Um, and the alcohol percentage on that was, what, eight and a half, nine? Eight and a half. Yeah. It's, um, Even with a really nice, like, light brie, something that you could oh, be definitely. with some apples, that would be really definitely. nice, too. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would also consider having this, like, with um, tropical fruit. Yeah, pulled this because it just, it reminds me a lot of Granny Smith apples, and or cooking apples. And I thought the finish actually was one of the hallmarks of the wine. It really, the different elements that you get at the beginning of tasting it carried on together right through a finish. There's just something magic about Riesling. I really like it. That was a really delicious uh, Riesling that Skip brought. I just wanted to let everybody know that Millie Martin has called in to remind me that the proper pronunciation is not Streusel, it's Streusel. And she also wanted me to remind you that it's equal parts sugar, butter, and flour. Thank you. Millie's great. Well, let's talk a little bit with the time we have left about a whole world of apple dishes that we're really not going to have time to cover, but that's savory things. Oh, right. Like pork, pork chops with applesauce is probably like the most famous savory apple dish that you can possibly imagine. It is. And do you, do you make applesauce? I do. It's so easy. It you is just easy. Just put it in the pan and, and let it go. It doesn't even, if your apples are sweet, you don't even need a little sugar in it. Do you peel them first? Yeah, most time. Yeah. Do you core yours too? Yeah. And then you, and then you puree them? Yeah. At the end? What kind of apples do you like? Do you like tart apples or oh, do you like sweeter ones? Is, I, I like tarter ones, but it just depends. Usually I just do a mix. Yeah. So I have lots of like the sweet and the tart and the uh, whatever else is going on there. But do you ever make, did you, do you ever take it to its full expression and make apple butter? I've never made it. If I do, I don't remember, but I have some beautiful apple butters that came from farmer's markets back east in well, my fridge right now if you start out actually making apple butter usually when i've done it i you don't even have to uh, peel and core the apples you just you just uh, throw them right in there you just chop them up into some pieces and throw them in there and put them on low heat and walk away for a long time and you do have to strain it at the end obviously uh -huh. because there's there's uh, seeds and there's and there's skins, but the seeds and the skins they they give tannins and they give some some things that give it a little more of a like because apple butter you know it's not even though it's super super concentrated sugar they're also partly caramelized and there's the tannins from the skins so you're getting this like intense like like deep deep flavor from it. Oh, I'm gonna go home and eat some apple butter. <laughs> there's oh. actually I, I there's a there's a uh, what is it. Liège de syrup or syrup de liège. I can't remember the name of it. It's a Belgian condiment. And it's like apple butter that has been like cooked forever. And it's like black. It's almost like apple molasses. Ooh. And they love it in Belgium. I'm sure it has its place. Do you put spices in it as you cook it or after or not at all? In what? Apple in butter apple or apple butter? sauce? You know, I in a lot of things like that, I'm sort of a purist. I, sure. I tend to... I tend to make, especially long cooked things like that, I tend to not add too much else just because, you know, I mean, several hours of cinnamon can get pretty intense. That's true. I don't know, but it sounds great. I put apples in my Thanksgiving turkey stuffing. That's classic. I put apples in my cranberry orange relish sometimes. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, a little crunch there. You know what I want to do, actually? You know the, you know, they come in cans. You know the spiced apples? Oh, I love they come those. In, I know they're amazing. I, I used to get them all the time when I was a kid. And then while I was, yes. when I was doing the show, I was like, man, I, how do you make those? You know, I never really thought about it. I was like, are they pickled or how are they done? Oh, my gosh. And, and I found out it's, you basically just cook them in simple syrup. 
Yeah. And I actually have, I, I planted mint this year. So now I have acres and acres and acres <laughs> of mint. And I was like, what am I going to do with all this mint? And so I made um, some mint simple syrup with it. I just made a regular simple syrup, which is equal parts sugar and water. And I put a bunch of mint in there. So now, and then I was thinking when I was doing this, I was like, man, I should make spiced apples with that you mint know, syrup. I- we used to get those all the time when we were a kid. I loved them. And so I went on this this hunt for them here, and you can't find them. So then I thought, well, I can make them. So I tried to make them one year, and it 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 didn't work so well. Why not? Um, I did a few things wrong. <laughs> but okay, well, you're going to have to tell us what they are. I am, but I don't No, no, no. But I want to tell you, um, I have a jar of mint syrup in my fridge, too. And a couple weekends ago, I was going to deep fry... Um, fish and I and the mint syrup looked just like the oil <laughs> and I opened the jar to put it and whoa we don't want to be doing that so uh, oh I anyway. thought you were going to say you actually cooked the fish in the oil no, and it was no, like the greatest I, thing it, it that was... anyone's ever had <laughs> Ooh, now let's think about that but no and and you know I don't know apples and really good cheese are one of my favorite snacks and what else do you like to do savory with them? Well, I Sausage have this, man, I, I don't even know if I'm going to have enough time to explain it, but I make this stir fried, this stir fried apple slaw that's apples and celery and fennel and uh, a little red pepper nice, and a little sesame oil. And I love it. And it goes really good with duck. How do you cut your apples up for that? Uh, I usually just cube them. You can cut okay. them, you can, you can cut them into strips though. And that'd be good too. And then cut your celery on the on the bias, uh-huh. on and the what, diagonal. And what kind of apples do you like to put in that? Uh, that one you want like a tart apple, like a Granny Smith a Granny or Smith. A, okay. something like that. I've used, I've used Braeburns in it too. Oh, Braeburns are wonderful apples. They're all wonderful. And I I, am going to go buy that Red Delicious apple. I want to you know. I want to know how it is. Yes, we will have apple tasting. I feel like you're going to be sad. That is, I am sad because that is the end of the show. We're going to have to wrap things up. Today, I would like to thank my guest, Terry Robel. You're welcome. What fun. Always. We always have a blast here on Check the Pantry. And we're going to have to say goodbye. My name is Jeff Lockwood. This has been Check the Pantry, and we will see you next week for the last episode of this season. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Eben. The cooking and tasting segments were recorded at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. This is the fifth episode of the first season of Check the Pantry.